Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Illinois State Treasurer Michael Frerichs. We talk about what it's like to manage billions of dollars every day, call people with news that his office has found tens of thousands of dollars that they never knew they had, and take on some of the biggest, most corrupt industries. He's led an extraordinary life, from a small town in central Illinois to Taiwan and back home again to serve. He's a very tall ball of energy, who's a great example of the power of public service. Enjoy. Illinois State Treasurer, Michael Frerichs, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Brian, thanks for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast for a while. It's uh, great to take my turn in the chair. (laughs) Well, yeah, and hopefully it'll be a good one because we have a lot to talk about. I want to start with this idea of not a lot of people you know, finish a job, walk into a job where they are responsible for 30 plus billion dollars. How has this job made you think about the money and responsibility that comes with it at the scale that you're operating? Well, before I was state treasurer, I served in the state Senate and we set budgets for the state of Illinois. And so our budget was larger than the amount of money I manage here, but I have a lot more direct control as treasurer. You know, I loved serving a legislative body, working with my colleagues, trying to build support for something. But it's great to be in charge, to make decisions, and to be able to execute on things. And so in our office, I'm the state's chief investment officer and banking officer. We oversee a combined portfolio of about $52 billion, about $26 billion in state funds. We help local units of government manages their money. It's a combined pool of about $9 billion. We oversee college and retirement savings plans, about $17 billion. And when you start throwing those numbers around, at some point, they just are incomprehensible, but they are big enough to make me realize this is a very serious job. We have to make sure we recruit good people in this office. We need to make sure we have internal controls in place because even the most honest people, when you put enough money in front of them, can be tempted. And it's my job to grow that money, but also safeguard the money that was put in my charge. So I imagine a bunch of our listeners are wondering, so how do you do that? Like, what's the mechanics of being a state treasurer? So there's a state treasurer who liked to say, if you've seen one state treasurer's office, you've seen exactly one state treasurer's office. <laughs> we have one thing in common. We are all the chief investment officers for our states, but we all have different responsibilities. Every organization you've ever been part of, Ryan, in your life, whether it be student council in high school, if you're involved in a church organization, any organization, club you were involved in, probably had a treasurer. And everyone knows they deal with money, but we just deal with it on a much larger scale here. 
In addition, in Illinois, I also oversee college and retirement savings programs and savings for us people with disabilities. I am also in charge of financial education and something we call unclaimed property. Uh, this is where we work as a consumer advocate, fighting on behalf of people in the state against financial institutions and corporations to get money that belongs to them into their hands. I like to tell people I have the best job in state government. I make money for the state. I help people make money to finance their dreams. And I get to give away money 365 days a year. It's like I get a place Santa Claus year round. But other states, uh, state treasurer in Massachusetts is in charge of the lottery. I am not. And the neighboring state of Indiana, our Indiana state treasurer is in charge of 911 services. I don't know how that got put in the wow. treasurer's office. But as I said, every treasurer is a little different. You mentioned one of the things you do is, in, not, in addition to managing these funds, is to go after bad actors. And you've gone after insurance companies and other bad actors. Can you talk a little bit about how you use the power of your office to get some justice? Yes. Uh, it's a big part of the reason why I ran for this office, because I think previous treasurers just viewed it as a, as a caretaker, as someone whose job it was to take state money and put it in treasury notes and you know be very cautious and get a nice return, but uh, nothing exceptional for the state. I think the office is what you make of it. And I'm someone who believes in protecting consumers. My time in the state Senate, I get to do that as treasurer because we're in charge of unclaimed property. This is money that belongs to people in the state of Illinois. It's consumer protection law in Illinois for over 60 years, because what previous legislatures found is there were some companies that would owe money to people, and they either just wouldn't pay them, or they might mail a check to a wrong address, and that check was never cashed, they would keep the money. Just because the check doesn't get to your house, because maybe it was sent to the wrong address, maybe it was thrown out as junk mail, doesn't mean that you have forfeited the right to that money. We found numerous examples of companies that were that put shady practices in the place to hold on to money longer than they were supposed to. And when I came in, the most galling thing I heard was there were some life insurance companies that would sell life insurance policies to people. They would sit down at, a, at someone's kitchen table and say, you know, if anything ever happens to you, your spouse and your children will need life insurance. And they signed on that dotted line and they made payments for years. And when they finally passed away, an insurance company too often didn't uphold their end of the bargain, didn't pay out to their loved ones, literally kept money that was meant for widows and orphans. Now, a lot of those people didn't have the lawyers, the resources, or the knowledge to go and get that money. But I'm in a place right now because of unclaimed property laws. We went into life insurance companies and said, we want to look at your books. And if we find that there's someone who bought a policy, made their payments, and you didn't pay out, well, that money no longer belongs to life insurance company. We'll take it and we'll track down the beneficiaries. And you know, some people just couldn't believe this happened or couldn't believe it happened all that often. In Illinois, to date, we have helped reunite about $800 million in unpaid death benefits. Nationwide, the number is counted in excess of $7.5 billion. $7.5 billion that life insurance companies were sitting on that should have been paid out to grieving widows and orphans. And because of this job, we fought, we sued, and people are getting paid. That's a mind-boggling number. And then it must be, it's life-changing for some folks, right? To get that money out of the insurance company and to where it rightfully belongs. You know, I just have phenomenal stories, scary stories. I'll, I'll tell you a couple of them. 
One, we were able to track down a woman and said, hey, were you aware that your father had a life insurance policy? And she said, no, I had no idea. So well, we found a life insurance policy your father took out for $10,000 and the woman starts crying. I mean, just sobbing. We think, well, you know, $10,000 is nice, but it's not it's not a half million dollar policy. It's not a million dollar policy. We said, are you okay, ma'am? Are you okay? As my staff person relayed this conversation to me. And she said, you know, my father died just about 10 years ago. And I was just thinking about how much I miss him and how throughout my life, my father was always there for me. And I was just feeling lonely because he was gone. And when you told me that he bought a life insurance policy and, and you're going to get that to me, it's like my dad came down from heaven and wrapped his wings around me. He's still looking out for me, even in death. And my person on the phone starts crying. They're crying with each other. And so it's not even just uh, big numbers. It's the fact that we help insurance companies keep promises and connect family members. And they're not always easy because we called one woman and said, man, we're calling from the Illinois State Treasurer's office. We have $100,000 for your two sons. Now, Ryan, what, how do you think she responded to that phone call? <laughs> I would think, gratefully, but I have a feeling, having served in public life, it might be a different reaction. <laughs> she hung up on us. We, we called her back and said, ma'am, hear us out. We're calling from the state treasurer's office. We have $100,000 for your sons. We'd like to talk about how we get that to you. And her response was, I recognize an identity thief when I hear one. I'm not telling you anything. And she hung up on us again. You know, so it can be difficult to give away money because there are a lot of people who are skeptical about state government giving the money. So fortunately, this woman was an attorney. She was a good citizen. She Googled Illinois State Treasurer, found a phone number, called my office and said, I want you to know someone out there is impersonating the Illinois State Treasurer. At that point, we were able to convince her that it was, in fact, our office that had reached out to her. And she wanted to know, why do you have money for my sons? Well, it turns out she adopted these sons. She adopted these two boys when their mother died in a fiery car crash. This was a single mother. She had two sons with special needs. And she knew if anything ever happened to her, they would need extra money. And so what would you do as a parent, Ryan? You'd buy a life insurance policy Absolutely. to take care of them. But they were, I think, nine years old at the time their mother died. They had developmental disabilities. They didn't know to collect on a life insurance policy. They didn't know who to call. And the life insurance company made no effort to reach out to them, made no effort to pay them. Fortunately, this saint of a woman had a son with a disability, was in school with these two boys. When she heard their story, how they were orphaned and were going to go into foster care, she took them into her house. She adopted them. And it wasn't until nine years later that our auditors discovered that they hadn't been paid out. We got that Googled them, tracked down the adoption, found her, and were able to reunite them. And it will be life-changing for these kids. She said, you know, hey, now when I'm gone, we'll be able to buy a place for them. And this is why I say over and over, I have the best job in state government. We get to advocate and fight on behalf of people who can't do it themselves. Absolutely amazing. And you also went after opioid producers, correct? Yeah. So another great part of this job, I'm the state's chief investment officer. When we invest in companies, that makes us owners of those companies. It makes us shareholders. And as shareholders, we have some stake in how these companies are running their business. We want to make sure they're sustainable for the long run. You know, when we invest for pensions, we invest for college savings or for your retirement, 
you know, we're not investing for next quarter. I don't care what you make your uh, profit for the next quarter. I care about having a long-term investment that pays off for years. And with these opioid companies, what became very clear is they're drug dealers. They were drug dealers in lab coats. They were selling narcotics. They knew it with this air of respectability. And I can tell you, Ryan, that being a drug dealer is a very profitable business model in the short run. You know, if you're selling drugs, it's a great business model. You you give your product to someone, you get them addicted, and they keep coming back and buying and buying and buying. And that's great. You make a lot of money until your customers die and their relatives show up very angry or you get arrested or any number of risks associated with selling drugs. It's the same thing with these opioid companies. They made tons of money, became phenomenally wealthy. But then eventually there was legislative risk. There was litigation risk. And some of these companies like Purdue Pharma actually went bankrupt because eventually it became clear what they were doing and they lost lawsuits. So I, as a shareholder, don't like that risk. We reached out to them and said, you're poisoning America. You're killing Americans. This is not a long-term sustainable business model. We want you to make some changes. And we have been successful with some of these companies who are involved in this. And some companies wouldn't listen, and they've ultimately suffered consequences and had to declare bankruptcy. This is just one example of the kind of corporate engagement that we work on in the treasurer's office. And how do you think about it? Because there's obviously seemingly every week a new company or set of companies to where people are calling for a disinvestment in these companies. But as you mentioned, you have some power as a shareholder when you are invested in these companies. So how do you think about the disinvestment versus activist investor role that your office plays? Well, we are such a large investor. It is really difficult to disinvest. Uh, We are involved in a lot of mutual funds, market funds, and it's tough to completely pull yourself out. And when you do, there are companies doing really bad things or they're doing bad things. As a shareholder, we have some say in their board of directors. We can file shareholder resolutions. We can try and change their worst behavior. You know, so we tend to focus there. You know, I remember back in 2016, November, when I was certain we were going to have our first female president, I was shocked, like many people, that the president won. I just didn't think America would vote for a guy who behaved the way he did. And like many Americans, I was just depressed for a couple of days. And I started thinking about all the things the Trump administration was going to do to roll back the successes uh, the Obama administration had with the Department of Labor with the EPA. And I was like, what are we going to do? And he's also going to appoint people to Supreme Court. And that's going to cause problems, not just for four years, but for four decades. And we're seeing the consequences of that. But rather than sit there and feeling sorry for myself, I said, well, what can we do about it? And I realized just because the Trump administration is going to allow companies to pollute and to treat their workers badly, doesn't mean that's in the long-term best interest of these companies. And as a shareholder, it's my job to speak up and make sure they have a long-term sustainable business model and to hold them accountable. And we spent the last six years or so working on that. Fortunately, we work with some other state treasurers that give us more assets in our management and give us more leverage and a greater voice in corporate behaviors. Let's talk about how you found yourself in this role. Were you always the treasurer in all those little student groups, student government back in the day? Is this something 
that's been on your radar for a while. How did you decide this is where you could best serve? Well, that's funny because I do have on my desk at one of my offices a plaque from my junior year of high school Spanish club where I was the treasurer. And it says, <laughs> Michael Frerichs, tesorero. But that is the only, the only time I really saw myself as state treasurer. You know, I grew up in a small farming community. My parents were involved in politics. My dad's a truck driver. My mom was a secretary at the university. First generation to go to college, only a second generation to attend high school. Uh, my four grandparents all had to drop out to work on the farms. They were tenant farmers in the sixth, seventh, or eighth grades. So uh, career in politics wasn't on my radar. But I did well in school, and I got selected for Illinois Boys State. I went there, and they had a college scholarship for the winner of the oration contest, the Getchell Oration Contest. And I can tell you, I was not a natural speaker. I was pretty much an introvert. But I knew that I wanted to go to college, and I knew that I needed money for it. So I applied. I wrote a speech, and I won. And I got to deliver that speech to Boys State. And it was the same day the governor visited Boys State. I remember giving that speech, got applause. I turned around and the governor was there with his hand extended to me. And big Jim Thompson had been governor for, at this point, about 13 years, much of my life. He was the governor and said, son, that was a great speech. You give me a call. You can write speeches for me anytime. And a little kid from a town of 800 people, never considered this, thought, oh, my God, I could write speeches for the governor. And it sort of put politics on my radar. And I thought about it. And I thought, but I don't think I'm a Republican. <laughs> so I never actually went to go work for that guy. Uh, but it put the thought in my head. And eventually, someone else encouraged me to run for the state legislature. And I just found in politics, I think you probably get this too. My mother raised me to give back. Of those, much has been given, much is expected. And life isn't just about accumulating dollars. But at the same time, I also grew up playing sports and I'm pretty competitive. And politics is that one place where I really enjoy the campaigns because at the end of the campaign, the end of the race, there's a winner and there's a loser. But then if you win, you get to actually do a lot of good. You get to help a lot of people. And this, this office affords me that opportunity. It is one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. Uh, I like to tell people that I don't have a job. I have an opportunity. I have an opportunity to fight on behalf of, to help nearly 13 million residents in my home state. It's amazing. Now, we have to back up a little bit because I'm curious because you went to Yale, you went to Taiwan, you learned to speak Chinese. And how did you find your way back to run for office in your community? That's the, there's a long way, both physically and metaphorically between Taiwan and learning Chinese to running for a county office? I'll try not to give the super long story, but you know, when I was 17 years old, I could not wait to get out of my hometown. 800 people, it was too small. When Mark Twain was 14 years old, he told people that his father was the most ignorant person he'd ever met in his life, could hardly stand to be in the same room with the man. So he moved out to California. He worked seven years there. When he was 21, he came back. He was amazed at how much his dad had learned and grown and matured in the seven years he was gone. And I found something similar. When I was 17, I couldn't stand it to be with my dad. I, I went out east for school. I uh, spent my summers in Eastern Europe. I just found opportunities or scholarships to travel. I moved to Taiwan where I taught English and studied Chinese. I came back home. I ended up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And then I got this fellowship in public affairs with the Coro Foundation. 
Coro is a small organization dedicated to training people to be leaders in the world of public affairs. But what attracted me is I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. But Coro, over the course of nine months, puts you in a series of internships in business, labor, nonprofits, politics, media. And I just thought I'd like to sort of try my hand at a bunch of different industries, a bunch of different fields, and see what works. And it was during my labor placement that I worked with the head of the Southwestern Illinois Building Construction Trades Council. And he ran to some of the things you just said. He said, uh, he said sit down and look at this, Tracy. You come from a farming family? I said, yeah, family's been farming for generations. Still family farm. My uncle farms it. And he said, but your parents are both in labor unions. Said, yeah, dad's a teamster. Mom's an asked me. My brother's a carpenter. He said, but you went off to Yale. You've traveled around the world. You've got this fellowship in public affairs, and you're a tall guy who stands out in a crowd. Have you ever thought about running for public office? I looked at him in the square in the eyes, and I said, Tad, you know, I always thought I'd get into an honest profession, and I can be a bit of a smart ass. And he was a very serious guy. He banged his desk and said, don't believe that. Don't believe you have to be dishonest in politics. You can be honest. And I said, well, you know, to be honest, I thought, you know, maybe it's someday after I've accomplished something, I would give back to my community. But, you know, I was young. I didn't done anything of note at that point. And he said, you don't have to wait. And he found out where I lived and told me about my uh, state representative that was representing my family. And the more I learned, the more I realized that someone needed to take that guy out of office. And that started my career in politics. It's an amazing story. And as you mentioned, you moved from the legislative branch to the executive now. Can you talk a little bit about what skills are the same and what skills are different and the pluses and minuses for the, I don't know, maybe the students who are just back from China and are uh, looking to, to get engaged in local politics? You know, I think if you're looking to get involved, there's no substitute to just getting involved. People say, well, I think I want to go uh, major in political science. That can be really helpful if you want to be a political science professor. But if you really want to get involved in politics, make a difference, just get involved. Knock on doors, make phone banks, work phone banks, and see what you can do. And and you'll find out pretty quickly whether this is for you or not. I really like this. I like people. I like hearing stories. If you do not like meeting new people, if you are an introvert, this is probably not a career path for you, legislature or executive. (laughs) Because I find the skills of getting elected to a legislative or an executive office are very similar. But once you're in office, they are very different. You know, I I liked working with my colleagues. We were on an equal footing in the legislature. My job was to convince them of my bills and listen to their bills. We try and we try and pass things, we try and reach compromise. It's a different skill set of trying to listen and put coalitions together. An executive office, you know, my job is to make sure an office runs. Legislative office, I had a very small staff to help with issues and to help with constituents, but I have a much larger staff to make sure this office runs. The, the other big difference I found is I really enjoyed my coworkers or my colleagues in the Senate because we were all kind of equal. We all got elected by the same number of people. We all had the same jobs and responsibilities. We were equals. Running an executive office can be a little more lonely. Because although I've established a great group of employees here, we have a good team, you know, it's different that it's, it's, you're clearly not on the same footing. I am the boss. And that just presents a different dynamic. Some people like it and some people don't. It's up to each individual to find out where they're comfortable. So as you think about, you know, 
your next steps. You're seeking re-election. This might be a challenging year for Democrats. How do you approach that that re-election? And what are you seeing sort of on the ground in Illinois? You know, I mean, typically in Illinois, we're a fairly blue state. Running for re-election uh, should be a fairly easy thing. But we're seeing a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of anger over crime, over inflation. Uh, if you look at polling, things don't look great nationally for Democrats. But I think that, you know, you don't sit back and wait for the world to happen to you. You get out there and take the lead. I, I give speeches. I remind people, you can look at polling. That's static. We have good stories to tell. We shouldn't be afraid to tell them. We shouldn't be ashamed. We shouldn't hide our light under a bushel basket. Uh, we should let it shine. So in our office, we talk about the success we've had in college savings. We took a program. Uh, I replaced a Republican treasurer. We took it from one of the worst in the country to first. We take it. We came in. We took on Wall Street. We cut fees in half, saving Illinois families hundreds of millions of dollars in fees. As a result, Morningstar Rating Agency moved us from bronze to gold, the highest rating they give. There's only three programs in the country that get that. You know, we set up programs to help people save for their retirement to deal with this retirement crisis. We set up a program to help kids with disabilities have a brighter future, let parents actually save something and give them a better future. We've come in and we've smashed records returning unclaimed property by bringing in new technology. And I can tell you that Republicans would not be fighting Wall Street. Republicans would not be fighting big life insurance companies. Republicans wouldn't be prioritizing education for poor people. You know, we've come in, when I took office, Ryan, about 1% of all of our broker-dealer transactions, so investments that go through broker-dealers, about 1% were done through firms owned by women, minorities, veterans, or people with disabilities. We felt that was just absurdly low. We wanted to change that. We're now at around 75%. It reflects their actual percentage in their population. And I can tell you, Republicans wouldn't have done that. So our answer to these, this bad environment is go out and tell our stories. You know, we've had great successes. We're the ones who fight on behalf of working people out there. And we shouldn't cede an inch to this MAGA crowd that claims that Trump cares about working people. We're the ones who deliver results. I like it. I hope it resonates for you. I was also... It resonates for Democrats as we're seeing the stakes are high and getting higher. And it's critical that we tell that story and that it resonates with the voters. So my last question is, I get 24 hours in Champaign, Illinois. What do you recommend? How do I spend my time? How do I experience your community? Well, that is a good question. I get asked that a lot because I'm the only constitutional officer in Illinois not from Chicago. And so people will say, well, what's life like in Champaign? I say, Champaign is great. I come home, I pull into my driveway, and I spend the weekend with my daughter. I've got a 13-year-old daughter, and Champaign is a fun community. It's a college town. Uh, you've got lots of interesting restaurants and bars. You've got great diversity in our food. Uh, the University of Illinois is an international magnet. They've got thousands of students from, from China, from Korea, from Europe, from South America, from all over the world. And that brings in interesting cuisine. It brings in interesting nightlife. It brings in entertainment. We have concerts that are far above the size of our town because you have 40,000 plus 
college students there that, that drive in uh, musical acts. You have lots of sporting events. You know, if you love sports, the university has plenty of opportunities to watch football, basketball, softball, gymnastics, tennis. There are any number of things out there. But I am kind of a homebody when I come home. I'm not really a great person to answer that. My daughter and I will play tennis together. We'll take walks. We spend time at home. We read. You know, I travel all around this great big state. From north to south, it can take about seven hours to drive from northern Illinois to the southern tip. I spend a lot of time on the road. I spend a lot of time out with people. And when I come home, I try and make sure that my daughter realizes that of those 13 million constituents I have, that she's the most important. So more than happy to give you some recommendations, but you probably won't see me out and about in a lot of them. Well, if I do, I got to tell the listeners, you're not hard to spot. You easily have to be the tallest uh, state treasurer in the country. So if you do manage to get out with your daughter, I'll see you coming for sure. Well, uh, I am, in fact, the tallest state treasurer in the country, but Tobias Reed in Oregon is not very far behind me. (laughs) Another New Dealer. Yes. A great treasurer and maybe even a governor sometimes. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for, for being a part of the New Deal. You always bring tremendous energy and ideas to every New Deal gathering. And we're really lucky to have you as part of the organization and as part of the podcast today. And we are excited to watch your reelection and see what happens next. Great. Ryan, thanks very much. Enjoyed talking to you. You Thank have a you. great day. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.